Hello everyone, welcome back to The Shift Podcast. This is podcast number 24. And today we are talking about patient empowerment. And on the podcast we have back Emma Neville. Hi Emma. Hi Alex. Could you tell us a few things about yourself and maybe touch on why this topic is uh, important to you? Sure. So I'm Emma Neville. I'm a behavioral scientist at HRW. I've been interested in patient empowerment for several years now. I did my master's at the University of Cambridge in philosophy of medicine. And lots of my research there focused on the nuances of patient empowerment from a philosophical perspective. I also did some research with the Cambridge Institute of Public Health, looking at the experiences of patients and carers who had experienced strokes. Um, so this has been a long-standing interest for me, and it's yeah a real topic of passion to think about patient empowerment and how it applies to healthcare market research contexts in, in particular. Could you give us just a bit of a, of a roadmap and an overview of what this patient empowerment conversation is all about? I view this conversation about patient empowerment as a question of the philosophy of medicine. And patient empowerment particularly takes a more egalitarian stance on what the power relations of a medical encounter should look like compared to the last century or so of medical practice. So as you probably know, medicine for a long time has operated under this tradition of doctors making decisions on behalf of patients. And that model is based on the belief that doctors know what is best for a patient and it views the role of the patient as uh, very passive and limited more or less to just doing what they're told by medical experts. And in the last few decades, another competing view has arisen, which is the view that patients also have a unique form of expertise. So they are, form they are experts on their own bodies, on their symptoms and their situation. And the view of patient empowerment philosophies is that we should honour this special knowledge that patients have and that honouring that knowledge is necessary to succeed in treatment. So this vision of medicine is based on a philosophy of patient empowerment. Was there any watershed moment when patient empowerment really came into the limelight? Not that I'm aware of. I think it's been a kind of creeping conversation um, and a large part of the fuel for that conversation has been the activism of patients and uh, patient support organizations in really advocating for how taking the patient perspective into account as a serious form of knowledge um, ultimately leads to better outcomes for patients on the whole. So I think it's been a slow creep and it has a lot to do with the activism of, of patients themselves. Thank you. That's very, very comprehensive. Um, one comment that we do hear a lot is that patient empowerment means so many different things to different people. What's your, your take on this? Well, it's a very important observation. And I think, so there's some ambiguity that comes in the conversation around patient empowerment, because the root concept that patient empowerment is dealing with is the concept of power and power relations. And anyone who's studied power before knows that they're, are tens of forms of power. People spend their lives trying to define and concretize the concept of power. So it's a really multifaceted root concept that forms the heart of this conversation. Each type of power has different implications for what we should do with policy and how we should practice medicine. So just to give an example, I gave a webinar recently on patient empowerment. For the purposes of that webinar, I focused on just five of the most important uh, forms of power for the patient empowerment conversation, which were informational power, psychological power, autonomy, interpersonal power, and community. So there's really a lot of different angles to think about what patient empowerment might look like. 
Could you tell us a little bit more about the differences between these different types of empowerment? Sure. So I'll give an example of two forms of empowerment that take really different approaches. Um, so the first form of empowerment that I mentioned in that list of five a moment ago was informational empowerment. And typically this is the type of power that pharma are referring to and that we come in contact with most in the healthcare business insights industry. So colloquially, informational empowerment is the type of power that we're referring to when we say things like knowledge is power. What it means is that when we have the right kind of knowledge or information at our disposal, we as individuals can take more effective actions towards our goals. For example, if your goal is to make an amazing lasagna, knowledge about the best ingredients and the right recipe are going to be really crucial pieces of information to help you reach that goal. So that's a very individual way of thinking about what empowerment might look like. By contrast, the concept of community empowerment takes a really different lens to thinking about empowerment because it thinks about power as it exists at a group level. So community power relates to the question of what resources are available to you as a group. And that's closely tied to how much influence you can assert as a group over political decision makers. So one area where the influence of community power is most visible is when looking at funding. The funding that is available to research different diseases is really strongly correlated with community power, with the power of the communities that are impacted by that disease. A classic example of this is comparing funding for malaria to funding for male pattern baldness. According to the WHO, we know that malaria causes 627,000 deaths per year, whereas male pattern baldness causes no deaths. Based on these statistics alone, you'd probably imagine that research funding would be directed towards malaria as it causes more deaths worldwide. But in fact, only about 500 million dollars a year is invested in trying to beat malaria, whereas the global expenditure on male pattern baldness is about four times that amount. It's two billion. So these imbalances have to do with the community power of the patients that are affected by these diseases. Malaria, as we're probably aware, is a disease that mostly affects communities that are marginalized on the global scale. So poorer communities, communities of color, about 95% of deaths by malaria occur in Africa. By contrast, male pattern baldness is a concern of mostly men in the West, and that's a community that have a lot of influence amongst funding allocators. So we can see when we look at funding how community power is so intimately connected with health outcomes for patients. In fact, overall, the um, Global Forum for Health Research estimates that less than 10% of global funding for research is spent on diseases that afflict more than 90% of the world's population. So they call that the 1090 gap. And I think that dimension of patient empowerment is more often put to the side in this conversation and in patient empowerment initiatives because it deals with the concept of power at a group level. But I think this group level lens or this global lens on the problem really begs the question of which patients we're focusing on when we talk about patient empowerment and who will benefit most from empowerment efforts. So I hope that answers your um, original question. Yeah, it does. In your experience, what is the biggest myth about patient empowerment? It's a good question. I think 
the biggest myth that I've come across is the assumption that patient empowerment is all about patient education. And it's certainly true that patient education has a big part to play in patient empowerment, but I think it relies on a misconception that once we have all the information that's available to us, that's all we need to be empowered. And I think that can sometimes be a short-sighted view, particularly because as a behavioral scientist, you know, you and I are both aware that behavioral science really emphasizes that if you want to educate someone and you want to boost their informational power, you need to do more than just provide access to the information. So the last 50 years or so of behavioral science research really testifies to this idea and shows us that it's less about what we say and more about how we say it if you really want to make a difference to patients. So behavioral science challenges us to question the idea that once information is communicated to a patient, that that information will always be understood and always be remembered by that patient. The reason why is that this assumption is in total contradiction to the science of memory, which tells us that encoding information into memory is quite an inefficient process. In fact, accurate recall is more often than not the exception rather than the rule. Even if we do manage to encode something in memory in the first place, it's often the case that we forget things or misremember things, particularly if it's complicated information, if it's communicated with jargon, or we don't have the chance to rehearse that information over time. And nowhere is that more true than when we're in a state of intense emotion, just like we are when we're in a doctor's office thinking about our health and potentially being diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. It's in those moments that we're entering a flight or fight state. The parts of our brain that deal with memory, that deal with planning, actually go offline. And research in the last decade has shown that as much as 80% of information that's delivered alongside a diagnosis of cancer is immediately forgotten. So it means if you're interested in educating patients, empowering them with knowledge, if your timing for that information is off and they're in a state of emotional overload, you're running the risk that all of your educational efforts are actually going to waste because they're going in through one ear and out the other. So if we're interested in empowering patients, I think we need to go beyond the idea that patient education is the end of the story. Cognitively, it's, it's a really difficult ask um, for patients and it puts a lot of unrealistic expectations on patients that they can empower themselves just by having access to information. I think we can do more and we need to do more to support patients in actually digesting that information and being able to mobilize that into action. Yeah, and I think patient empowerment can be beneficial for everyone, not just for the patient, because it means that everyone's efforts are more fruitful. Mm, it's so true, and it makes the doctor's life easier if they have an empowered and engaged patient. They know that the outcomes that they're working towards are the ones that are really going to make a difference for that patient. So I completely agree with you. Everyone wins. Yeah. Um, I've also heard you talk before about the importance of non-patient interventions in patient empowerment efforts. And alongside that, the, about the role that the ACPs have to play in patient empowerment, speaking of ACPs. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Something that I'm particularly passionate about is getting people to focus on the role of non-patient audiences in their patient empowerment efforts. So if you're concerned about patient empowerment, it's really easy to become focused on just the role of the patient. You know, that's the person you're trying to help. But actually, the nature of power is that it's a relational thing. So focusing on the patient alone might not actually be the most effective lens on the problem and could even perpetuate victim-blaming narratives if you're not very careful about how you execute it. 
to state the obvious, one huge variable of the power equation of a medical encounter is what is the doctor doing? The nature of the role of a doctor means that they often act as gatekeepers. So that could be gatekeeping, testing, diagnostics, referrals, medications. And that role as a gatekeeper gives doctors a huge amount of interpersonal power over patients who might need access to those things. So one example where this can be problematic and that we've seen in the research we've done at HRW is when patients are denied access to diagnosis or to treatment because of conscious or unconscious prejudice. So we've conducted lots of research, for example, in women's health at HRW, and we hear from countless women and especially women of colour who find that their pain or their symptoms are not taken as seriously by their healthcare providers as you might hope. And many of them have for years been denied access to proper diagnostics and effective treatment. So this way of thinking about power as part of a relationship highlights the difficulty in achieving empowerment all by yourself. The truth is that we don't live in a vacuum. We live in a network of power relations. So to a really important extent, it doesn't matter how much I myself educate myself, how much I build my confidence and all of those individual efforts. If the person I'm interacting with who has control over the things that I need to have access to to reach my goals, if they're withholding access to that, there's not a lot that I can do. So I think this perspective on the problem does invite us to move past that model of empowerment as a problem of individuals, the problem of patients alone, and start to examine the different social forces and the other actors in the equation that can limit patient empowerment and start to ask the question of who else do we need to work with to make sure that our patient empowerment efforts can actually go the distance in practice. You've mentioned ACPs as another category of individuals that can help with patient empowerment and a very critical category. Um, because, as you said, they're the gatekeepers to everything that we need to accomplish our health-related decisions and goals. What other categories of individuals can we think of for patient empowerment? We can't forget the role of carers and the wider support networks that patients are a part of. Often in research contexts, we can think of a patient as a kind of isolated unit. Um, but in reality, you know, those patients rely on care and support from their friends, from their family, as well as professional carers. And that's particularly true for lifelong conditions or particularly debilitating conditions. So it brings us back to the um, conversation we had about community power and that dimension of thinking about power as it exists in groups, because I think that reminds us that patients don't live in a vacuum and providing materials and support services to the social network around patients can be a way to support patients um, that has a big impact without directly addressing patients who might already have a lot on their plate. Yeah, and again, it must feel better for everyone involved, the effort to share. Mm, exactly. Yeah. It, it takes a village. I really see what you mean about how multifaceted the concept and the notion of patient empowerment really is. Yeah, no, you're right. It's really complex. But the good news is that looking at the multifaceted nature of it means that there are lots of different avenues and angles that you can spot on places you can intervene. And all of those different avenues of intervention do really add up to make a big global difference overall. So earlier when you mentioned um, 
prejudice and societal biases like sexism or racism and how those biases and that prejudice enter the picture when patients are advocating for access to diagnosis or treatment. In relation to that, do you have any advice for how patients with marginalized identities can advocate for themselves and get the care they deserve? I'm glad you asked, but it is a tough question. and I think there are no simple answers to that question. But one illusion that perhaps we should strip ourselves off in trying to think about that question is this idea we sometimes hold that patient empowerment is a bag of fun. I think in our excitement to achieve patient empowerment and get folks on board with the project, we can sometimes unwittingly give the impression that patient empowerment is all rainbows, all sunshine, and that it always feels good for patients to be empowered. And that's a really well-intentioned idea. But if we perpetuate that uncritically, the risk is that it will underprepare patients for the challenges and the conflicts that they might face as they are on a patient empowerment journey. The reason why is that at its heart, the empowerment of patients is a change to our status quo. It's a challenge to the status quo. And it rubs up then against a cognitive bias called status quo bias, which is our tendency to prefer to keep things the same. You and I both know as behavioral scientists that change is hard and it involves resistance. So one particular study of patient empowerment in the US, um, which I really like, tried to measure and illustrate this dilemma. And it was found that patients who scored highest on empowerment measures, they saw lots of benefits. So they had better adherence, higher well-being, higher satisfaction with treatment and so on. However, all of those benefits were coupled with negative consequences as well. So the interactions that these patients had with their healthcare professionals involved more tension, involved more anxiety, and they had higher rates of anger than the control group. What the researchers who conducted this study explained is that what we expect from patients is passive behavior. So the increased patient participation of those empowered patients was a new situation for the patient and the healthcare provider to deal with. And that departure from the status quo was attended by anxiety, anger, and some dissatisfaction. What this basically means, I think, is that high quality patient empowerment initiatives must adequately prepare patients for a level of discomfort and potential conflict with their healthcare provider that these patient empowerment discussions might bring. If you send patients into a figurative battle for patient empowerment without providing them proper training or proper equipment, it's likely that things might backfire. So I think we need to be cautious about how we talk about patient empowerment and the extent to which we prepare or underprepare patients for the tense conversations it might lead them to have. Yeah, and that really makes a lot of sense. And to go a little bit deeper, how could patients prepare themselves the best for potential conflict? A good point. Actually, I didn't answer your question of what advice I would have for patients. I think I have two kind of streams of thoughts on this. The first in the interest of preparing patients for conflict is to go down the route of action planning interventions. So that might look like explicit goal setting, working through if then scenarios. So if X happens, then you can think while you're in a cold state about what your response would be, doing role plays, rehearsing, having difficult conversations, all of those different tactics aim towards helping patients build up a detailed vision of what their goals and preferences are without the influence and pressure of a doctor in, in the room. 
So for example, those if-then scenarios and role-play scenarios invite the patient to really crystallize what their preferences are while they're calm. The second line of thought that I'm thinking about is the importance of the role of social support. So this brings us back again to the conversation about the community around the patient. Because what behavioral science research shows is that our behavior change efforts are much more successful when we have social support in place. And I think particularly for patients, it's essential to coping with the increased tension that empowerment can bring and in helping patients keep the faith in face of these inevitable challenges of health and illness and empowerment. That can also help them overcome any initial struggles they might have, for example, mm. or if they deal with an ATP that's not as open to them being empowered to that level and having those and opening up those conversations. Then they don't allow the horns effect, you know, one interaction with one ATP to cast a, a negative light onto all the other mm. um, further interactions. Yeah, it's so true. And it reminds us of what we talked about earlier of patient empowerment interventions need to go beyond just the patient. I mean, if you're providing materials and support support to that surrounding social support network, they're going to be in a better position to best help that patient. So really taking a zoomed out perspective is helpful. Thank you so much, Amanda. That was very illuminating. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you, the audience, for uh, for being with us on another podcast and for listening to us. We'll meet you next time. If you'd like to get in touch with us, if you have any thoughts on today's topic, feel free and welcome to message us on Twitter at HRWShift or to reach to us via email. Our email address is shift at hrwhealthcare.com. Thank you. Bye.